0: The time now is coming up to three minutes past five o'clock. Time for Discovering Music with Charles Hazelwood. Today he joins the BBC Concert Orchestra and pianist Joanna McGregor to explore the piano concerto of George Gershwin. But he begins the programme with the overture to Gershwin's first Broadway success, Lady Be Good.
1: I was conducting the BBC Concert Orchestra leader, Charles Mutter, in that performance of the overture, Lady Be Good, from Gershwin's musical of the same name, in that orchestration by Don Rose. Now, that is an overture that does exactly what overtures of the time were meant to do. It gives you a preview of all the biggest tunes of the show, beginning with the name tune and bringing that name tune back just before the close of the work. So it's this sense of linking fragments from the show with binding agent material in between before that return of the title number, just before the end. Now Lady Be Good opened in New York in 1924 and it was a huge success very quickly in other parts of the world as well by the mid-twenties. Gershwin had already had great success as one of the Tin Pan Alley songwriters, the forum from which all of the pop music of the day was coming from. But Gershwin was as much drawn to the musical possibilities of the concert hall as with the dance hall and the theatre. The main work we explore today is Gershwin's piano concerto in F major, composed hot off the heels of the music we've just played. But in order to more fully appreciate what Gershwin achieved in his concerto, we need to explore first a little bit more background. Gershwin's chance to bridge the divide between the concert hall and the popular music of his day came at the start of 1924, in one of the most famous concerts in American history, Paul Whiteman's concert of so-called symphonic jazz, a concert with a very strong pedagogical aim, to show that jazz, so-called, could sit in the concert hall alongside orchestral works, and they were featured in this long concert, works by composers such as Schoenberg and Elgar. But the work that stole the show was Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. grasp today just what impact this music had in the mid-1920s and I quote in it the serious musician found that the breach between the music of the masses in other words Tim Panelli, and that of more cultivated taste was actually non-existent in other words all music should be open to all surely a founding cultural precept of the American dream It's a pocket piano concerto in which Gershwin himself would have been the soloist, a wonderful demonstration of his great gift for melody. There is one criticism, however, which is often levelled at this work, that Gershwin isn't always successful at developing his melodies. The material doesn't always seem to flow terribly naturally from one idea to the next. Gershwin himself admitted that when he wrote it, he knew as much harmony as could be found in a ten-cent manual. Chords were set down without any particular attention to their theoretical structure. When my critics tell me, he said, that now and then I betray a structural weakness, they're not telling me anything I don't know. Now, Gershwin originally wrote Rhapsody in Blue for two pianos, leaving it to Paul Whiteman's pet orchestrator, Ferd Groffe, to make the orchestration we now know and love. But look, structurally, this work is more sophisticated than the Lady Be Good overture we played earlier. Gershwin does try developing his material. For instance... But, as you can hear, This is often little more than speeding up or slowing down previously heard material. Again, take this. wonderful Gershwin song-like melody from the heart of Rhapsody in Blue. Well, that is transformed into... Right at the end of the piece, what do we get? Just as in the Lady Be Good overture, a final restatement of the opening theme. Piano, ladies and gentlemen, courtesy of Joanna McGregor. Joe, what to you are the most important hallmarks of Rhapsody in Blue?
0: Rhapsody in Blue is a bit like the Greek piano concerto. It comes up fresh every time. It's a piece that's been around the world hundreds and hundreds of times. And every time you play it, although you know it incredibly well, it's still thrilling however it's quite simple because it's essentially a sequence of piano solos knitted together by orchestral interludes and so of course there's a bit of a quantum leap as a piece of composition from this into the piano concerto
1: well let's find our way now into gershwin's piano concerto and what is extraordinary is just how much he'd learnt and assimilated in just 12 months <laughs> From that brief extract, you might not think there's much difference between this piano concerto and Rhapsody in Blue, but my intention very much is to show you differently. The piano concerto was commissioned by Walter Damroche for the New York Symphony following the success of Rhapsody in Blue, the premiere of that piece Damroche had actually been present at. Gershwin took great pains to study and to listen to other particular grand 19th century concertos before even beginning to write. And, significantly, he orchestrated this work himself. Interestingly, there are no saxophones. It's almost as if Gershwin is making a point. He's writing this piece for a standard symphony orchestra, just to show that he is absolutely in line with other so-called concert hall composers. Having said that Gershwin looked carefully at the form of other concertos, he didn't slavishly copy what he found. Instead, he develops a structure to suit his own musical language, which brings us rather neatly to the J-word jazz. It's so important to stress that this is not jazz. Gershwin's, like so much of the popular music of the 1920s, the music of Timpan Alley, the musical theatre, is jazz-infused rather than pure jazz. In particular, it draws on two key elements gleaned from jazz, the blues and ragtime. I'll show you what I mean. Firstly, the blues, essentially, originally, the blues was a vocal phenomenon. ...its distinctive colour and that wonderful sense of melancholy... ...coming from singing and bending certain notes... ...which realistically lie somewhere between the notes... ...found among the traditional twelve in a chromatic scale. And the area where this quality most commonly occurs in the blues... ...is in the area of the third note of the scale... ...the fifth and the seventh. I'm going to ask Joe to help me explore this. So at the points in that scale we heard clashes... That's where the between notes, the ones we call blue notes, actually appear. And it's the emphasis of these blue areas that has given rise to what is now known as the blues scale. Now the blues per se is not really Gershwin's sound world, but the blues notes are found throughout Gershwin's music. Joe, so you've got um, a fragment of the C-sharp minor piano prelude, haven't you? Yeah,
0: this is a really lovely, slow blues that comes in the middle of three preludes, It's, it's like a lullaby, but it's absolutely based on that blues scale I just played.
1: Of course, what you immediately hear is this tremendous sense of ambiguity. The idea of, will it be a major third, will it be a minor third? Is it a major key? Is it a minor key? That, if anything, is what Gershwin draws from the blues. Joe, there's that phrase from Rhapsody in Blue, which perfectly illustrates that point. You've got a major third, and in the same key, a minor third, a diminished octave, effectively. It's a key sound in Gershwin's concerto, as is the use of blue notes and the bending or chromatic sliding of notes together, as if to suggest the weary quality of the blues. Now, the other feature taken from jazz is, of course, the rhythm. Ragtime, which was crucial in the evolution of jazz, and its characteristic use of syncopation, throwing the note off the beat. If I set up a beat, and then I put some syncopation over the top, Yep, ba 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 ba. It's effectively like walking on the cracks in the pavement. And so this sense of this use of syncopation is exactly what goes on throughout the concerto. Here's the opening piano theme from Gershwin's concerto. that diminished octave once again. Again this sense of ambiguity between major and minor. So that's a very little about Gershwin's musical language. What sort of thought does he give to the structure and development in the concerto? Let's remain with our piano theme. One thing Gershwin does with this is to introduce a counter melody. He's layering his musical argument making it more complex and therefore more interesting. It's a structural idea not found in Rhapsody in Blue and the counter melody is first heard in the Cours anglais and the violas When Gershwin brings back the piano theme a little later on in the movement, he reverses the roles. The orchestra play the piano tune while the piano takes up the counter melody. Simple but effective. And when, at the climax of the movement, the tune reappears, played grandioso, the counter-melody becomes a thrilling fanfare for the horns. Another striking feature of this concerto is the way Gershwin begins it. Traditionally, a concerto starts with the full orchestra, introducing the main themes, which in turn are taken up by the piano, but not here. The mood of the opening is very different from the bluesy theme adopted by the piano at its first appearance. After which, the piano makes its first entry. Now that opening, a very urban sound, a bit like, I don't know, a giant machine being wound up into action. None of your courts and palaces of the 18th century, the salons of the mid-19th century, or the rural retreats and literary fair of the romantics. This is music of the modern age. The piece, after all, was originally going to be called the New York Concerto. Well, we've heard virtually all the core musical material that will formulate this first movement. Let's hone in. First, that unusual percussion introduction. It could be seen as the musical equivalent of a sculptor's block of marble, the raw material from which the main thrust of the concerto will gradually emerge. It's simple and it's basic, a contrast to what we're going into. It is, I suppose, thoroughly mechanistic. A simple rhythm, no hint of jazz, the timpani establishing the key with an almost banal statement of the tonic and dominant. Then comes something which must have come as a real shock in the concert hall in 1926. One of the most fashionable and ubiquitous popular dances of the mid-twenties was the Charleston, with its characteristic Charleston rhythm. Well, this had come from the American South, spawned from the syncopations of ragtime. Gershwin plucks it from the streets, dusts it down, and plants it amongst the symphony orchestra. The third main musical idea is of great rhythmic and harmonic importance, a simple rising and falling melody with a characteristic regular dotted rhythm. Now, each phrase of that idea is based on a simple harmonic structure, a major sixth chord. Let me just show you exactly what that chord is. I'm just going to ask the four wind players here to do this. So we get an F, then an A, then a C, and the sixth on the top, a D. So those three ideas, along with the bluesy piano theme, are Gershwin's principal musical material but they don't seem to have been presented in the way you might normally expect. Traditionally, the first movement of a concerto is in sonata form, in other words, in three sections. An opening, which is the exposition, development of ideas, called the development, recapitulation, when all the ideas come back more or less in their original form, followed by a coda. Well, in Gershwin's first movement, there are echoes of sonata form. The main piano theme returns at the climax, giving that sense of recapitulation. But overall, Gershwin's structure is far more subtle, Again, it's possible that one of Gershwin's models was the music of Liszt, in particular Liszt's second piano concerto. Gershwin takes his themes through a series of thematic transformation, some of them not immediately obvious. It's not a set of variations, but something different. Sometimes he combines fragments of one idea with fragments of another to create a new idea. Sometimes he superimposes two ideas together. The music is never static, and the process of constant development gives the concerto a feeling of spontaneity, almost as if it's being improvised. How appropriate, given its jazz roots. Well, there's no time to list all of the transformations, but if i point out one or two, you'll get the idea when we come to play the concerto later on. For instance, take that last idea we just looked at, the dotted figure based on a major sixth chord. Now, if we transpose that chord into A-flat major, from F major sounds like this we can now perhaps hear how this passage has developed from it And the winds, as you heard, play the dotted figure, as if to emphasise its origins. The dotted figure then mutates into a ragtime idea, which in turn is gradually merged with the Charleston theme. the contrasting, song-like theme that follows is based on the skeletal outline of the music we've just heard, albeit considerably slowed down. <laughs> and from here, Gershwin finds new life for the Charleston idea. Listen to the end how the piano incorporates a hint of the dotted figure while the trumpets and trombones utter a short linking passage based on the opening bluesy piano theme. Everything in this movement springs from the simple musical ideas we heard right at the beginning. At around the same time that he was writing this concerto, Gershwin also began composing a series of short piano preludes. He finished seven altogether, one of which has become especially popular as slow blues, and it's from that C-sharp minor prelude we heard Joanna play a little earlier. The piece has a simple three-part structure with a slow section and its repeat divided by a livelier middle section. Gershwin was obviously very fond of this structure, and he uses a similar idea in the slow movement of the concerto. The orchestral trumpet there, suggesting the bluesy cornet playing of the likes of Louis Armstrong and Bix Beiderbecke, played here by Kate Moore. And there's no piano, that significantly Gershwin saves for the faster middle section. And this is classic Gershwin, good-humoured, even witty, a fantastic foil for the music which has preceded it. It's almost like minstrel music, with the strings even suggesting the twang of a banjo. And then we get back to the slow blues. We might expect Gershwin to leave the movement after the return of that opening blues idea, but it soon becomes clear that nearly everything we've heard so far has been preparing the ground for the music that's to come. The care that Gershwin has taken in foreshadowing the event shows just how masterly he's become at integrating his music. What comes next is a wonderful song-like theme that could happily have taken pride of place in one of Gershwin's shows. Emotional heart, you might say, of the concerto. We're going into the third movement now. Remember that set of solo piano preludes I mentioned earlier, the ones that Gershwin was composing at about the same time as this concerto? Another one of those preludes became the backbone of the last movement of this piano concerto. <laughs> The last movement is quite like a classic rondo found in the concertos of Mozart and Beethoven with the rhythmic prelude idea returning again and again. What's novel about this concerto though are some of the episodes he introduces between the rhythmic rondo idea. faster, transformed version of the piano theme from the first movement. And it's not the only episode to borrow from previous movements. Just a little later on, Gershwin gives us this in the strings. (laughs) The big tune from the slow movement... Well, this last section of the concerto is a kind of bravura run-through, a kind of delicious voyage through some of the great tunes of the piece as a whole. This is something Gershwin constantly loves to do, referring back to the beginning of a work, at the end, as exactly we heard earlier in the overture of Lady Be Good. It's a form he's very familiar with and he has a natural empathy with. So, at the end of this piano concerto, just as at the end of Lady Be Good, Gershwin gives us the big tune, the opening bluesy piano theme, played grandioso, complete with a J. Arthur rank gong introduction. Also, you hear that mechanistic timpani right from the very beginning of the piece. And in the final bars of the coda, there's yet another echo from the first movement. same major 6th chord that underscored so much of the first movement. Gershwin took huge pains to structure and unify this concerto. It's not only a marvellous illustration of his musical intellect, but a potent example of his great musical imagination and ability to remain oblivious to any boundaries that might exist between popular music and the concert hall. Joe, what's clear about this work, though, is that how thoroughly Gershwin did study some of the great Romantic master piano concertos. It's all over the piece.
0: Yes, all through the piano part. There are sort of almost not direct quotations, but he really, really knows inside the Romantic tradition. So you hear a lot in the first movement, me do things like this. Which is straight out of Rachmaninoff. And in the slow movement, you hear me do a lot of this. It's a very sort of big Tchaikovsky style playing. But what, what of course, he's got that Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff don't have is amazing wit of a tin panani pianist. So, in fact, your brain has to move quite fast between styles. So, soon after doing a Tchaikovsky style thing, you find yourself doing... So you're sort of quite—you've got multiple personalities, in other words, while you're playing this.
1: Time for some questions. There's a gentleman here near the front. He's got a microphone to you. Apart from uh, possibly some instances in avant-garde music, I can only think of Bernstein as the other uh, crossover composer. I mean, has this apparently rigid demarcation between the popular and the serious, so to speak, uh, over, down the centuries, had a lot to do with musical snobbery, do you think? Joe, do you want to tackle that first, or shall I?
0: (laughs) (laughs) For me, the the main thing to remember about Gershwin is that he was a real natural. Everything he did was completely open and honest, and he came from a very working class russian jewish immigrant background in new york he grew up on the streets of new york he made his way as a tin pan alley pianist and so he sort of he was an absolutely self-educated composer in a lot of ways and so when he came to the orchestra he came with fresh ideas and he had fantastic background in classical music but he brought with him all the jazz of the 20s and uh, and a much more spontaneous approach and the other thing to remember is that He died so young, he died at 39, so all the pieces we're listening to of his were essentially young man's work, and I find it very moving that a lot of his work shows the potential almost of what he might have gone on to achieve, he only wrote one opera, and this concerto is one of the first of his great symphonic pieces. So that's for me the freshness and the originality from from a really, really fresh mind.
1: For me, I suppose, the essence of of Gershwin was that for him there weren't any rules. A bit like John Adams today, the sense that music, his music, could embrace and encompass anything he fancied, whether it was a song he heard whistled on the street or some of the kind of gestures that Tchaikovsky might have employed. Yes, and I think
0: that's a very American approach to music. You see, like Charles Ives, these people came out of a completely new country with a new background, and they really did want to turn their back on the r- European mainstream tradition which perhaps was rather heavy with rules and history. And Gershwin had all this background as the jazz guy, but he also had the American style of I'm going to do it my way, this is this is a new way of writing music.
1: Well, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, together with pianist Joanna McGregor, the BBC Concert Orchestra led by Charles Mutter will now perform for you Gershwin's Piano Concerto.